once in a while. And I really like that. Like the fact of like being able to drive across town and like, you know, answering emails on my way there. Like I can't do that. Um, I have to make every single decision for myself and I can consult people in, in my life who are willing to listen, but there is like an inevitable circumstance that like it all comes down to me. Um, and I like the earthquake metaphor because natural disasters are exhausting and you are, I write about this in the book, you know, you are already worn down. And then things get layered on top of that, wearing you down even further to like getting you to like energy deficits that you didn't know you could endure and exist with it. Yeah, there, as you mentioned, like they could last forever. I also believe that they probably will last forever. Hey friends, it's your host, Lisa Kefauver here. Welcome back to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast. But just in case you're new to the show, yes, this is a podcast all about grief. My guests and I explore the expansiveness and pervasiveness of grief in our lives because, let's face it, 100% of us experience grief multiple times in our lives. I certainly witnessed it over my career as a social worker and in my personal life too, with the most significant loss being my husband in 2011. But honestly, I'm in the midst of a different kind of grief this season of the podcast as I'm currently navigating breast cancer treatment. I'm wondering where you're at. Maybe you're in a new season of grief or just new to reckoning with old grief. Or perhaps you're hoping to learn how to better show up for the griever in your life. Regardless of the reason, I'm so glad you chose to be here with me and my guests because together we're reimagining grief one conversation at a time. Since her husband's untimely death, my guest Allie Bird has poured her heart into helping those who feel helpless during an unexpected crisis. Her extensive study of grief psychology and culture, combined with her own devastating firsthand knowledge, led her to create a roadmap for those committed to supporting the bereaved. A registered psychotherapist, qualifying coach and speaker, Ellie offers a clear path to those who have the courage to take on this really vital role of being a grief ally. I learned so much in our conversation today, and I know you will too. I can't wait for you to meet her. Allie Bird, welcome to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast. I feel like this has been a long time in the making. Oh, you have no idea. I have been, I have been hoping and wishing and listening for to you for such a long time that this is a dream come true to to be here and and spending time with you and and having this conversation. Oh, well, thank you so much. I'm so grateful. Listeners, um, I want to tell you about Allie's book, Grief Ally. If you're watching a little social clip, you can see the beautiful cover and you can see how it's sticky noted like I do with my books and underlined. Um, We're going to dive into... um, the lessons of your book about what it means to be a grief ally. We're going to define it. We're going to talk about um, kind of the wisdom that you share in this book, which I feel like is just such a good gift for everybody. Like if you know somebody who's grieving, pick up a copy. I want to dive into sort of how you came to this wisdom, as many of us do from your own personal experiences of loss. And I also want to touch, we're going to talk today about kind of 
where this whole journey has taken you into the work that you're doing as a coach and even a therapist now. But you're not going to be surprised since you're a listener. I want to start our conversation today where I do all, which is really unpacking where you learned your grief beliefs, which is where we all learn them sort of um, in the, from our culture and in particular from our families. So when you think back to your childhood or young life, can you think of an early memory of loss and how the adults were modeling grief for you? What did that look like? What comes to mind when I ask you that question? Yeah, when when you asked me that question, the first memory that I have is I am five years old and my dog um, mm. was euthanized on yeah. a day when I it happened in the morning and then I was sent away on the school bus to school um, in the afternoon. And I remember looking out the window and like tears were like running down my face as like the bus like turned the corner like out of sight from my house and a friend like looked over at me and they're like what's the matter and I just my dog died and that was like the end of the conversation in my home with the friend and that for me really you know paints the picture of how death and loss and grief existed in my world um, as a young child into early adulthood. Um, and then everything started changing when I became like a more self-aware adult and was like, this There's doesn't this. make sense. Yeah. This doesn't yeah. ring true. Yeah. Yeah. This isn't, this isn't going to work for me. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I appreciate you sharing that. What was your pup's name? Sam. She was a Sam. golden lab, a rescue <gasps> that my mom had before she had me. And it was, yeah. Yeah. She was just the, you know, she was part of the family. I mean, as dogs are, I still agree. With, yeah. I mean, I that made me think. So thanks for sharing, Sam. And I think so many people listening can re relate to this. I'm not sure that I've talked to somebody, especially I would say maybe of my generation, maybe even yours, maybe it's shifting now in, in kind of younger generations where there was just that sort of, especially with a pet, pet loss, I think is still minimized, but I think especially sort of back in the day, you know, the parents just thought that it was best. Again, our parents did their best with the grief beliefs they learned. So let's not pile on the parents, but your parents probably they thought did. this is done. This, the best thing for Allie is to just you know, like not bring it up because then she's going to be sad and we can just kind of move on. And it teaches us so much about what emotions are safe to have, what's okay to express, what we're allowed to feel attached to or not. Um, and that sticks with us even, and we apply it from dog to people to circumstance, right? Um, in Absolutely. ways that we wouldn't have known. Yeah. 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 It, um, I think to like to give my parents credit, you know, there are circumstances that we just don't have, like in particular situations, we, we aren't given the time that yeah. our grief deserves and is worthy of. And you have to put one foot in front of the other, other to like keep moving forward and Absolutely. to pause and even recognize their own grief, there wasn't the space for it. 
So yeah. I mean, this how was could your they mom's give back pup. to their children? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. This was your mom's pup who might've been, and your mom might've been, cry, you know, crying in her bedroom, but thinking that she was trying to do the right thing by you, or maybe not giving yourself time to cry because she had to maybe go to work and she's got to raise a kid and got to do the things. We're, we're going to touch today a little bit on what you're <laughs> talking about too, which is kind of the cultural, you know, which is mm-hmm. what I'm always talking about is kind of the cultural problems and stories, the limitations that we have around grief and even the systems that don't really allow us to grieve in the ways that come naturally to us. And that little example from your childhood, you know, I think is is one of them. But but we carry that with us into adulthood. And you said that as you moved into young adulthood, you sort of, as what we hope all of us do, we kind of have some <laughs> more self-awareness and we're growing. Um but you had a really profound loss in your, I call 30 young adulthood. That's because I'm 52. So 30 <laughs> seems like young adulthood to me. But can you tell me a little bit about Will? Maybe even start with what Will was like in life. I always like to bring people's life into the room and a little bit about that loss. And But yeah, maybe first tell us a little bit about Will. Yeah. So Will and I met when we were 25. And I like to describe um, the way we connected is that, you know, he filled all the gaps that I didn't know I had. We Mm. met at a time when I was wildly confident and just wanted to go on so many dates. And I just ended up meeting him and that was it. Um, We just hit it off so well And I had a really great group of friends, but there were parts of my life where I was like, you know what? These are things that I want to do and I'm willing to do them alone at this point. And he showed up and he was like, this is what I love too. And I was like, amazing. Like I am set. Let's do it. And yeah. And we had this really beautiful life full of adventure and excitement, but just like this deep bond and trust that I had never felt um, with anyone else. My you know, biological family or my chosen family. It didn't exist there. Um, and so we, we had the opportunity to move across the country. And so we ended up on the West coast of Canada and we're hiking and mountain biking and rock climbing. And he just had this gusto for life, um, that I had never experienced in anyone before. And he didn't sweat the small stuff um, at all. And I very much came from an experience of you collected the small all stuff. of the, all of the small stuff. <laughs> I yeah. did. Yes. You don't need it. I'll take it. Okay. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, so he was, he was a great partner and a great teacher and the person that I had hoped, um, to spend the, the rest of my life with. Um, but unfortunately he died instantly in a hiking accident, um, at the end of 2019 completely unexpectedly, suddenly. And yeah, I was thrown into the world of grief without any real understanding of what it was like to live with a life-changing loss. Yeah. Thank you for sharing Will with us. And um, I just always appreciate when people you know, what I'm trying to do when I invite people to share their person with us, their life with us, not just the loss that we experience, the grief we experience in the wake is to model exactly what you talk about in this book, which is like, these people live with us for our lives. And so many of us have this false belief that if we ask a griever about their person, 
that we're going to make them sad or make them think about the person when they hadn't, as if we're not already always thinking about them. And so um, I appreciate, and I know, and I know as a widow myself and someone who's lost a friend, um, I realized today is an anniversary for me. We'll talk about maybe today, but mm. that it is bittersweet sometimes when people, when you get to share, you know, about your person, but I appreciate you sharing about Will and also his vibrancy and that he sort of met you where you were and matched your energy um, I think that's really, really beautiful. There's something in particular about your loss. You, you share a little very, just for context in your book, grief ally about him and the loss. Mm-hmm. And so I, and I want to respect sort of just the, um, the, that we're going to explore sort of what you've learned about how to show up for people in the wake. But one of the things I'm curious for you to explore for those of us who are listening, who are young widows or, who have friends who've lost a partner young is something about the particularities of um, losing a partner when you're that young. Um, mm. I was 40 and I felt like I was young. So you were 30. That's <laughs> even younger. Right. And I've had um, a few guests on who are a little bit younger, but something about the particularities, not having peers who've experienced loss comes to mind as being a challenge? Is there something that you want to, and also just the accidental nature, this wasn't an illness that you had time to prepare for. Again, no grief thief comparison. It's not good or bad, but (laughs) something about either of those things that you think are important for people to understand. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, it's, I, I don't wish to put myself in anybody's shoes who had more time, Um, but I also in my early grief did a lot of disenfranchising myself, um, saying, oh, you know, we only had five years together or, you know, who the hell am I to call him my husband when, you know, technically we weren't married or am I a widow if we weren't married and for, you know, the purposes of labels and, and trying to find community. I have, you know, taken on the label of widow. I call him my husband just because I feel that's the way it was. That's the relationship you, know, you had. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There, yeah. there was no difference between the relationship that Will and I had together and somebody else who got to stand in front of their friends and family and say, you know, you are now husband and wife. Like we own homes together. There was a cat. Like we had every intention of spending the rest of our lives together and we just didn't get the chance. Yeah. That's so important what you just said there too. Like that claiming of the label. I always think about that. Like I get to say widow, but like today is the eight year anniversary of my friend Joe passing. I I was with him when he passed, but I don't have a label for a person who lost a friend. Like there isn't a label and, and how, much labels can be, they can be problematic. Yes, but that they can be helpful. So can you tell, like, did you know sort of immediately, like, it's important that I'm going to claim this label of widow? What, how did you, how did claiming that label come to pass for you? Um, to be honest, I think I had to claim wife before I claimed widow. Yeah. And that, that in itself was hard. Um, you know, really scrutinizing my relationship in a time when I was the only 
able-bodied person to do it was a really uncomfortable task. But in doing that work, it also gave me greater agency in recognizing that my grief was also valid. And the caliber of change and pain that I was experiencing because of Will's death, saying that I was experiencing that because I was his wife and therefore now a widow, gave me the space to say like, no, this changes everything. And it's okay that it changes everything. And it's okay that it's going to take a really, really long time to figure out how to exist in a life where he is supposed to be. Yeah. 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 I think that label for you in a way was kind of that permission giving that you needed to give yourself that we all need to give ourselves. And you spoke about disenfranchised grief, which is this experience that so many of us experience. It comes from, we do it to ourselves. Culture does it to us. Systems do it to us. That's like a whole, you know, lecture for another day. That's one of my (laughs) classes for my UT course. But anyways, but what, what you just said, I think is so important. We all have this tendency to do that, whether or not we were given sort of an approved label is like, oh, well, we were only this, or they were my blank, or it was other people have it harder. And, and it sounds like maybe how were you able to sort of set down that disenfranchise? Because a lot of us do that disenfranchisement and we grief thief ourselves for a long time. Like we don't even know we're doing it. Did you feel yeah. like you were able to kind of turn a corner quickly and really give yourself the space and permission to sort of be with your grief or? I mean, I think it took a few months to be very yeah. honest. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I couldn't have done it alone. Um, there are a few like chosen family members who really supported me in kind of like adopting the label of widow and just validating at like every moment that they could that like this, this was my life partner and, you know, to, to give myself the space to recognize that loss. Um, and also part of my story is that the majority of my acute grief was in COVID, um, which was, you know, an added challenge that I wouldn't wish on anyone, but also one of the, I wouldn't say benefits, but aside of that experience was the isolation that came with it and the availability that I had to others was very, I'd say like niche, you know, I, all I had was the phone or a a therapist singular, like there were no support groups. Um, I was, I was very limited in terms of the resources that I could access. So in doing that, like it was very me focused. And I think that's what led me to have, you know, to make the progress that I did in the amount of time that I did. It might have been a much longer process if I had been exposed to like the world at large and trying to exist within it with my grief. Yeah. Yeah. That's really, I appreciate you saying that. And I think it's been interesting as I've interviewed people like during the middle of the pandemic, I was interviewing people. And of course, you know, I don't know if we're post pandemic, whatever this version of the world that we're in right now. And I think for some people, there's sort of a both and or a mixed 
experience of the pandemic. Like in for some in the way that the world slowed down, it helped them have more permission to slow down themselves because part of the challenge for many of us in the loss is like, I mean, one of the chapters titles of my forthcoming book is how the hell is the world still spinning? You know, and it's yeah. like in normal times, people are just getting in their cars and going to work and having vacations. And you're like, wait a minute, my world has fallen apart. So for some, I feel like the pandemic in a way felt like it mirrored their grief life. Mm -hmm. And to your point, and it also <laughs> furthered the already um, common experience of isolation, which grief yes. is extraordinary. I don't think people really can understand who haven't been through a profound loss. And I'm actually re-experiencing this in the grief I'm having as I journey through cancer right now of the profound um, isolation you feel, not just because works we're going to talk about in the book, people don't know how to show up or they're not calling or in the COVID, they couldn't actually be there. It's because we don't recognize ourselves because what we lose is our identity. Yeah. And so there's this like added layer. I wonder that like the world felt unknowable to you because it was a pandemic, then your person passed, then who are you in the world? That isolation, I can imagine, was really intense in those early days. You're nodding. So tell me a little bit about what that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. To be honest, like, I don't I don't often go there and think about it too hard because it is still a very painful okay. memory. Um, the I remember coming out, I'll put that in air quotes, yeah. of, yeah. you know, the COVID and when we were like allowed to be in the same room, like yeah. without masks or whatever. And I just remember like going to a yoga class and like the, the teacher was, you know, offering Reiki throughout this restorative yoga class. And I remember being touched and shuddering yeah. because like it had been so two years and like not having any physical touch. Like I think I'm still like yeah. experiencing the effects of that. Yeah. And it's not something that I've, I've given the time <laughs> that, yeah. that it needs to explore it. And I, I don't think I'm alone in no. that experience. And I, it's, it's going to, to take time to unpack yeah. um, what the, the impact has, has been of it. Like, I don't, I don't want to like, yeah, not going to bypass it by any means, no. but it's a, uh, it's a, it's a big thing. It's um, another, it's another layer of work to do. Yeah. 100%. That, sort of, that sensory deprivation. I mean, again, to what you're pointing to, again, I think one of the myths that we misunderstand is that we think grief is emotions and that emotions live in our head, but the layers of losses, including like the loss of touch, we live and feel grief in our embodied selves. And so while you and I are going to, you know, therapy. We've both been <laughs> practitioners and we are now both, you know, have our practitioners and have participated in there and talk therapy is beautiful. And there's something about attending to the grief held and the emotions held in our embodied selves that is equally important. We don't often get to that first. Most of us I'm talking about myself. <laughs> do the and I I mean I'm I'm unpacking some of my own somatic you know, experiences of grief. So I appreciate your tenderness and your vulnerability in sharing that with us. And, and I can imagine that this really touched other listeners because 
We do experience grief, especially for those people who experience profound loss in the wake, in the midst of the pandemic. That's another layer that if you're feeling like, why am I not quote unquote better? Or why am I still struggling? Maybe this is an invitation for you to think about, for all of us to think about, like, how am I attending to my energy body, my physical body and the losses that I've experienced there? Yeah. 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 Some great questions. This is really beautiful. Um, you know, that reminds me of, a, there was so much in your book that I really loved. I think <laughs> I assume that I understand why you had this experience of being a widow where um, you were recognizing that other widows were feeling like we're all told, go find your people. It's like Norm McInerney's like, yeah. go get your grief yeah. on other people, right? <laughs> like go find your people. And you had a, Sounds like a beautiful experience of having people show up for you, even if it was maybe virtually yeah. in a beautiful way, but that others weren't. And that's what sort of brought you this call to action to write Grief Ally. How did, how did it come to pass? When we come back, Ellie shares how fortunate she was to receive tremendous support from her community she was surprised to discover this wasn't the case for most people and dismayed there wasn't much out there on how to be a strong grief supporter, which is how her book Grief Ally was born. You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. By the way, if you're loving this episode, don't forget to spread that love by following me and posting about it on socials. You can find me and tag me at Lisa Kefauver MSW and at Grief as a Sneaky Bitch. I would love to hear from you. Hey friends, if this podcast means something to you, if it's helped you in some way, it would mean the world to me if you would do one or all of the following things, actually, if you'd like. First, follow or subscribe to the podcast. Following helps you because it means you won't miss an episode when it drops, and it helps me because then I know you won't miss it. You simply head to the Grief is a Sneaky Bitch show page on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen, and then tap the plus sign in the upper right-hand corner or click the follow button. After that, why not leave a five-star rating and write a review? You could also click the share button and send the show to a friend who might need it too. I appreciate each and every one of you for listening, subscribing, reviewing, and sharing the show. Hey, I'd love to stay in touch with you off the air too. Maybe you're looking for some grief support tips or some behind the scenes content from the pod. Are you wondering when the heck my TED talk is going to drop? Yeah, me too. It's got to be soon, right? Or are you hoping for some sneak previews from my book that's dropping in spring 24? Maybe you just like to know the sources of my own learning about grief and what it means to survive and thrive in the world in the wake of loss. I'd love to share all of that with you. Here are a few quick and easy ways to make sure we stay connected. First, sign up for my not-so-regular newsletter by visiting lisakefauver.com forward slash newsletter. That's Lisa, K-E-E-F-A-U-V-E-R.com forward slash newsletter. It's called that because, like grief, this newsletter isn't on a schedule. Second, just head over to your favorite socials like Instagram and follow me at Lisa Kefauver MSW. I offer a lot of candid shares there about myself, about the podcast, and my work as a grief activist too. 
And third, and you know the drill by now, make sure you're subscribed to the show on your favorite podcast platform so I pop up on your screen the minute the next episode drops. Yeah, so very, very early on, I was gifted a session with a renowned grief therapist who told me to go find community, go find people who are like you because now you, you know, you have this experience that's very different from your peers. And I, you know, you're in a club, you didn't want to join. Exactly. Right. (laughs) And added to that, you know, also being 30 years old and, and not, you know, someone at the end of life, um, even further, you know, removed from my peers. So their intentions were good. So I went and I tried. I joined all the Facebook groups. And I, I found the podcasts and the stories that people were sharing. I wasn't finding any community in them. I was actually feeling very guilty about my my privileged experience of grief at that time. And we're talking like, you know, two, three months in at this point. And in these Facebook groups, you know, people... I'd say like 70% of them are people venting about how they are feeling abandoned and forgotten and misunderstood. And I wasn't having that experience at all. Like despite my friends not, you know, being able to understand what was happening to me at a very like deeply personal level, like they were showing up, they were making mistakes and they were like, whoops, sorry, got that wrong, but I'm still here. And that... I attribute to, you know, being where I am, like this far on the other side of my loss. Like I could not have done that without the support that I received from my community. And to be honest, like, I just don't think that's right that other people don't get this support. But then when I started like looking about like, you know, where is the guidance? Like, where are people going for the answers to how to show up? Like somebody must be teaching them the wrong thing. And, you know, in my research, it's like, oh, no one's teaching them anything. You know, they, all these books and grief resources, blogs, podcasts, they are all wonderful, but they are all written and geared towards an audience that is the griever themselves, rather than people who are in more of a supportive role, who are looking for the answers to what do I do and how do I help? And the answers that they're being offered are like, bring food. Go to the funeral. Damn casserole. You know? Yeah, exactly. Right. And like, if you are someone's best friend, sure, like food is going to get you in the door and it is great. And, you know, I am grateful for all the food that was sent to me. But at the same time, it's like once you're in the house, like, what are you going to do then? Um, So, my goal with the book was to just offer people who are looking for answers, who are in that support role to give them a little more guidance, a little more agency, and just instill some confidence that like, hey, this is going to be hard, but you are more than capable of doing this work. And like, here's here's a roadmap that you can follow. And that ensures that like, that your person is going to get the best support that you can give them through the long haul of their grief. Yeah, no, I so appreciate it. I really appreciated this book. Um, You know, I've I've, well, I mean, I've, I've got a little bit of it in my own forthcoming book, but I've read 
probably hundreds plus, you know, grief <laughs> books and memoirs now for my role as a professor of loss and grief and for this podcast and as a grief. Although when I, when Eric died, there was very few of these, these books yeah. were not out. And I agree. I think not only did we in a, grow up in a culture that didn't know how to experience, didn't know, we know sort of innately how to experience grief, but that we are yes. taught in, you know, incorrectly as you learned, get on the school bus and go. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So if we don't know how to grieve, how on earth would we know how to show up for other people in their grief? Right. You know, yes. so I think that's why this, this, I can, and this book is so important, but also that it comes from your own experience of having had some beautiful lessons and some ways in which people showed up. Um, I think I would say I, I experienced a mix of, you know, some, helpful, some not so helpful um, ways in my own early widowhood, but I appreciate. I'll I'll add that I did experience, you know, there was the unhelpful stuff. I just choose to, yeah, Yeah. we don't need to talk about enough of the bad in the world. Let's talk about the good. Yes, exactly. You can go back to listen to previous conversations where I lament all the stupid shit people said to me. So yeah, well, I appreciate that. And one of the things you do early on in the book, um, I mean, you know, of course, you sort of debunk this five stages of grief myth, which I've done on other episodes, so we won't go there. You kind of talk about even the loneliness. Um, I know you quoted Julia Samuel's quote around that, which I think is always so beautiful. But one of the things you started to unpack early in the book for this is the grief supporter. So, I mean, as a griever, read this book, by the way, because I think it's really useful to feel seen. But if you're the grief supporter, one of the things I appreciated that you did early on was help us start to understand the really important nature of secondary losses, Mm. um, which, again, of the categories of losses that aren't talked about, I think that one is, you know, up there. Um, and you used a metaphor earthquake, which I love. I've used that myself about the sort of waves of losses that continue to happen. I mean, I would, for me, I would say for a lifetime, they come up and they're sometimes yeah. ambiguous. So they both, I would say, be categorized as secondary and ambiguous losses. But mm. you use this earthquake metaphor. And then there's just this passage that you wrote in this, in this section about, um, losses, if I can share it with you. I just thought it was really profoundly important for people to, for grief supporters to be able to really put themselves in the bodies of the griever and why these secondary losses are so important for us to know as grief supporters, really. Mm. You said, your person now lives with an energy inside them, created by tensions between the world that existed when their beloved was alive what life cannot be like anymore because their beloved is gone and the ambiguity of the future in realizing that more loss is imminent. The tension gets recreated again and again as more secondary losses are recognized, layered on top of one another and layered again onto a new life without their beloved, a reality in which your person likely won't ever have chosen to live. Hmm. (sighs) Yeah. 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 Tell me a little bit about what it is. I know. I just like, (laughs) I'm having a moment because I'm having some, I'm having my own. It's 12 years this year without Eric and I'm having some more. I'm going through cancer without him. And that's another secondary loss of this loss. Like I don't get to have a partner walk alongside me in this. So I feel very deeply that this 
important notion that we need to, for ourselves and for the person we loved who's grieving, recognize the secondary losses. What, what came up for you when you wrote this or what secondary losses were you experiencing maybe at the time of writing it that made you made this so important to you? Yeah. Um, you know, we talked about this in the beginning of the interview that like, I, I didn't get the chance to marry will, which my, before he died, like, you know, it, it, it wasn't as big of a deal as it feels right now. Um, but we always talked about it. Yeah. Like it'll happen in the future. You know, I, I always joked that I was going to like send out like an RFP, a request for proposals, um, <laughs> to like get him to, I was like, just a, a joke, like among my friends. Um, I love it. And being the age that I was and that I am, everybody in my married. world gets married, has kids, kids weren't part of our plan, but the, the amount of times that I am reminded of I am alone in this world Yeah. rather than, you know, I, when Will died, I, I recognize, you know, I have this really beautiful chosen family and as time passes, they are still my chosen family. They are my people who, you know, if I called them and said, like, I really need you, like they will show up, but they are also taking these steps of building their own, you know, biological like family units and I'm still over here being like, I'm, I'm, I'm not ready to like try and build something different. Like I'm still yeah. living with the aftershocks of not being able to build what you are building. Yeah. And that's probably just like one of the biggest yeah. ones, one example, you know, and then yeah. there are like, you know, more mild things of constantly having to drive everywhere. Like yeah. when you're partnered, you know, yeah. like yeah. I, I got to be the passenger once in yeah. a while. And I really liked that. Like the fact of like being able to drive across town and like, you know, answering yeah. emails on my way there. Like I can't do that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I have to make every single decision for myself yeah. and I can consult people in, in my life who are willing to listen, yeah. but there is like an inevitable circumstance that like it all comes down to me. Yeah. 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 Um, and I like the earthquake metaphor because natural disasters are exhausting and you are, I write about this in the book, you know, you are already worn down and then things get layered on top of that, wearing you down even further to like getting you to like energy deficits that you didn't know you could endure and exist with it. Um, yeah, there, yeah. As you mentioned, like they could last forever. Yeah. I also believe that they probably will last forever. They probably will. Um, their frequency and maybe their intensity, yeah. I think, will, I mean, that's been my experience, will probably diminish. But I do think if it's a profound relationship, it will reverberate. And I think that earthquake metaphor is, um, and not to dismiss, by the way, anybody who's been through a literal earthquake, that's its own profound loss. But I think that sort of the level of exhaustion, the level of debris, and just as you think you're sort of rebuilding, right-sizing things, putting things together, an anniversary, an event, 
you know, something comes up and we're sort of shaken again, down again. We're not starting from scratch, but I think it's really important to understand that they can be financial, they can be physical, they can be emotional, they can be spiritual, they can be existential. They can be things that are like the absence of things. I mean, I think about like, I had to sell my house because I now couldn't mm. afford to. So then I lost my house. I mean, I had somewhere to live, but yeah, because I now couldn't afford. So sometimes we lose sort of a physical thing or a place or a, a home. And sometimes these losses are more ambiguous, um, which is what I was alluding to further, which is the things that we dreamed had a reason to expect to pass that don't come to be. Yeah. And that's kind of what you're talking about. We didn't get to get married. We didn't maybe get to go on these adventures. And every time a friend does it or it's the date, certain date, something happens, right? We experience those secondary losses all over Absolutely. again. Yeah. yeah. And just the, like the, the level of, you know, you, you touched on it before, but like the way our identity changes because yeah. of the loss too, right? Like Will and I were very outdoorsy, like hiking, camping, like always outside and in the mountains. And like, after he died, I think it's been a shock for people how little of that I actually do. Yeah. And in the yeah. beginning, I thought, you know, oh, I must have PTSD because he died out there. And now I don't want to go there. And it's like, yeah. actually, no, like, I can be out in those spaces, but I don't want to be there without him. Yeah. And you can invite me, but I'm not going to have a good time. Um, yeah. So the like the level of there's an element of kind of re rebuilding yourself, but then rebuilding yourself and introducing yourself yeah. to the world again. Yeah. And that in itself also takes energy. So it's pulling on, you know, yeah. all these different, different strings and we can only tolerate so much at once. So much exertion <laughs> and we need to yeah. rick and rest. Yeah. I mean, I've yeah. been thinking and talking a lot lately about the endurance that it takes Mm -hmm. um, you know, in grief, but I want to touch on something you just touched on there, which I know you did a little bit in the book, but I think it's important for us to pull out this notion of the ways in which there's a version of us that we were in the world when, and this can, by the way, apply to other kinds of losses that aren't death of a beloved, by the way, this can be related to a chronic illness or a catastrophic injury or, a, you know, other experiences of loss, but it, let's stick with this in particular, when we lose an important person in our lives, we lose a version of ourselves. And part of how we move forward in grief is to, you know, I use always this metaphor of rewrite that our, the manuscript of our lives have been torn to shreds, right? And so I've been thinking about like, we have to sort of rewrite, there's a p pieces of us that we bring forward, but we have to co-create a new version of us. What have you learned for yourself about the, about the wanting to bring the versions of yourself that you were before the pressure to be that version in the future, the performativeness mm. of that? Wow. That's a great question. I mean, you were just talking about like people were <laughs> expecting you to be still the hiker and the camper. And then there's this like tension between what people expect of you, what you maybe expect of yourself what you're able to be in this moment? Yeah. Um, I think that one of the, the greatest lessons that I've, I've learned in grief and something that I really wasn't tuned into before Will died is that I would, I mean, actually I was making progress. Let's say I, I, I'll give myself that I was making progress, <laughs> but the, the notion that like I would, 
I was the kind of person who would do a lot for others before I, you know, did things for myself. Yeah. And grief has been kind of the, the great teacher in my life to slow down and actually tune in and be like, what is it that you want? And what is it that you need? Yeah. And just starting at like a very needs based level of what does it take to survive in this landscape? Um, and for a while it was like boundaries. I have become a boundary queen, um, in this. Um, if I don't want to do it, I don't do it at least, you know, to to the extent that I can, obviously, you know, I have bills to pay and that sort (laughs) of thing, but you know, (laughs) um, but no, just like, you know what, like I get invited to that event and like, that doesn't feel good. I'm not going to do it. Um, and I know now, like after, you know, three and a half years plus into this, that the people who respect me and respect my grief will respect my choices. Um, and that's a really great gift that I hold on to. Um, another, you know, one of your guests on the podcast, Steph Jagger has been a great teacher to me as well. And to not abandon myself. Yeah. Um, and to be really tuned in to be like, even, you know, from like a sensory experience. Um, I, I have a therapist who thinks I'm probably neurodivergent. Um, just because there are things that like, with this elevated sense of awareness being like, okay, like this feels good and this doesn't. And like, how do I incorporate more of that into my life? Um, or exist in messy spaces, like trying to keep up appearances. It's like, no, most people have two people or more to take care of a house. Right. I have one. So what am I going to be able to do as one person who also has to do X, Y, and Z to survive. Um, And it's been a a tough road in terms of trying to find comfort in that. And like, there are still some things that are still uncomfortable um, when I do them, but you know, it takes practice. A hundred percent. Yeah. 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 You know, what I appreciate, Ali, that you're saying there, there's sort of two things that are happening. There's sort of the versions of yourself that you are becoming in the wake of loss, which may or may not have been that elevated or at all because of the loss. So there's that identity. But there's also, I'm always hemming and hawing. I'm like, if you're watching a little social media clip, I'm like holding my hands over and over again. There's also this (sighs) gift or this opportunity that a profound loss like that gives you, which is to recognize how do I tune into, have I even ever asked myself what I need? If it's what I need is probably very different than it was in the before. And then how yes. do I figure out how to go about getting that need met? Because also my resources are different than they were before. And this opportunity is given to us in a way, if we're ready to sort of claim it, when you, like you said, to not abandon ourselves is to say, I recognize that life is fleeting and that I don't, that this is one gift. We're all going to go every single one of us. And so then to say no to the things and yes to the things and how do we do more and how do we move from surviving, which is kind of the state we're in early on in our grief to dare I say thriving (laughs) <laughs> and by the way, that is not two points on a continuum when we're done. We vacillate between yes. those two. 
But it sounds like that's part of what you are building in this version of you in the, in the wake of well was this, how do I tune inward to figure out who I am in the world, how I thrive in the world. When we come back, Allie and I explore this place we get to in our grief where we move from surviving to asking ourselves, what does thriving look like? We also explore some of the key components of what it means to be a good grief ally, including not putting early pressure on the griever to be strong and in thriving mode too soon. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver, and you're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. I absolutely love hosting this podcast, full stop. And did you know that I have the good fortune of showing up other places too? I write about grief, uh, including my forthcoming book, Grief is a Sneaky Bitch, published by UT Press coming this spring. I also serve as adjunct professor of loss and grief in the School of Social Work at UT Austin. One of the favorite ways I show up in my mission as a grief activist is when I deliver grief education and addresses to workplaces and in events across the country. I recently delivered my Grief 101 workshop, which I call Grief Happens, Let's Talk About It Already, to a Fortune 500 investment firm. Y'all, my heart burst wide open when I received this note from the vice president. Your workshop today was amazing. You are a true example of strength and compassion. Thank you for helping us foster a culture of care for ourselves and our peers. Yes, they get it. They understand that we bring our whole selves to work, and that includes our grief. Notes like this make me so hopeful as I'm seeing more and more organizations recognizing that truth and committing to learning so that they too can create a culture of care. In case you're looking to bring grief education, awareness, literacy, or support to your workplace or event, why not drop me a note? You can visit me at lisakefauver.com. Yeah, that's, that's a, I'm, I'm happy you pointed that out. And it's, it's often, um, I've never disclosed this on a podcast, but like, there's a, like, I don't have a lot of personal narrative within Grief Outlaw because I feel as though the story was actively still being written in my own personal life. Yeah. And, and is still being, being written now. Yeah. But I hope to, to one day kind of capture that in a memoir. But I think, I, I often I replay this message in my head as that like Will's death broke all the rules for me. Yeah. All these, you know, if we talk about um like uh the unconscious assumptions that we have about the world, the the, sh- the assumptions that are shattered when we experience yeah. trauma, Will's death did that for me. Yeah. And I have actively been trying to find evidence of rules that I can live by now. Um, you know, they're probably written more in sand than the concreteness that they were before Will's death. Yeah. But yeah, just trying to, and my, my therapist now we have a, a, a saying, it's like, Oh, there goes Allie burning it all down again. And I'm like, yeah, because that's, that's, if we only have one life, I want to live in a world where like I get to be the fullest expression of myself. Yeah. And that means having my grief be out loud in addition yeah. to all the other parts of myself and that 
I live and exist within environments where it is all welcome. And I don't get, I'm not going to get to a place of those environments if I'm not good with it myself first. So there is a level of kind of like excavation and exploration of who am I and who am I in this world? And what do I need to be that? Who do I need around me to be that? Um, and that's obviously, it's, it's a constant work in progress. It's a work in progress. And grief is the sort of impetus for so many of us. But by the way, that's our lives. Like we were yeah. under il- illusion if we thought we weren't changing and growing and evolving and really needing to sort of tear it all down and build it back up. Not, I mean, we may bring back 90% of the things, but we have to, you know, home edit our closets or I do yes. like a little Marie Kondo, you know, like <laughs> even without grief. And so, you know, I, I think I said this piece, um, I was really fortunate to give it a TED talk earlier this year, um, which will be coming out soon back when I had hair. Um, but mm-hmm. anyhow, um, and one of the things that I said in that, which this is just reminding me of that is that yes, grief doesn't end, but grief transforms as it transforms us and we are transforming yes. it. It is a very, mm. it's a very cyclical thing and it's, brutal on days and it takes endurance on days, but it's also a beautiful gift, which is sort of the both and of what you were just talking about there. Like it's hard to be burning it all down and building back up, but also kind of exhilarating. Like I get to create the rules uh, of how I want to be in the world and how I want to show up in the world. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, the thing that always catches me and I uh, I'll be honest I haven't quite figured out how to the right language to like wrap around it but I think in my own personal experience with grief in this you know very ambiguous ball of growth we'll call it um I am coming out on the other side like I love myself more than I ever did yeah even at like my most rawest human form like yeah I like myself and I like the person that I am and the person that I am becoming. And I'm not grateful that it has happened because Will died. Exactly. Um, But I'm, I, I feel more in tune with who I am and the world around me than I ever did. Yeah. Um, And, and grief has, was definitely the, the, where the seeds of that were planted. Yeah. I mean, I think I'm not sure that I've had a guest on the show or a client or even someone in my classroom who haven't sort of come to that point. Like we wouldn't wish this on anyone. And yeah, there is something if you're willing to sort of do the work and face and not run from your grief and face it, you get to tap into an authentic version of you that a lot of us just in our busy modern lives don't get a chance to do. And so um, there's something really special. There's something really special about that. And if you're someone who's a grief supporter and you're sort of thinking about the struggle in your person, in your life, who's going through the grief, you might also be on the lookout for the, like this other positive thing, this sort of asset driven thing that your grief grieving friend has that they might be experiencing this opportunity to sort of really know themselves 
authentically. I think a lot of what we talk about when we talk about being a good grief supporter, and I want to make sure we touch on some of the kind of key concepts that you think folks um, need to know, although go out and get yourself a copy of the book, but (laughs) is we sort of look at for like the things they're missing, help fill the gaps of like, help them with daycare, help them feel seen and it's emotionally, physically, financially. And those are important. But part of what happens is we start to see the griever as someone um, with a deficit Mm. and someone sort of lacking. And I think, and this is further along in grief, but I think for me as a grief ally, when people have like observed or noticed the sort of assets, the ways I've grown in my grief, the strengths, the not the resiliency, you're so strong, you can do it, which by the way, I'm tired of being strong. Um, you know, not necessarily <laughs> that stuff, but right, exactly. I'm getting that a lot right now with cancer. Um, but the sort of like, I really, if we can find ways to appreciate the grievers, I really like the way you set a boundary these days, or I really notice that you're really w- trying new, you know, arts or activities. I love your creative expression that you're doing now. I never saw you do that before. Like as grief allies, how can we show up and see the assets of our grievers? Mm, Can you tell? I love that, Lisa. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think you made a a really critical point that that doesn't happen instantly. This is a a longer term piece for sure. In the beginning Um, we're, yeah, we're just trying to fill in you know, as you said, yeah. sort of all the, we're just trying to sort of sweep up the rubble and, and sit down on the floor with them. I mean, that's how I always think there's like, mm-hmm. just come alongside me and be in the rubble with me. That's a gift in itself. But down the road, how can yeah. we um, help maybe be a mirror for our grieving friends as they move through some of this sort of really profound growth, like what you're experiencing right now? Yeah. Like that's the, that's the long haul part of it, right? Yeah, like yeah. so many people are, are ready for the, the rubble, yeah. you know, they're, they're willing and ready with the, you know, the pack of tissues and a joke and a hug and yeah, that's, that's all great. <laughs> yeah. And the lasagna. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, the, the long haul part of it is really recognizing the, the changes that this person will endure and become because of the death in their life or, you know, any other kind of, you know, significant change or loss. Exactly. Um, Well, I feel like you covered that in the book in a way, and I want to make sure we have time for you to talk about some of the key things. I've got some other passages sticking on it, but maybe thinking about I mean, grief allyship is not just for the, the the beginning rubble part, just to keep this earthquake mm-hmm. metaphor going. But how would you describe grief allyship, sort of in a broad definition? How does someone? How would we know that we're being a grief ally? What does that look like? Yeah. So the definition I use is that you are showing up for someone who is bereaved or you know experiencing this this change um, with deep respect for their unique experience, that you are empowering them to explore and, you know, get their needs met in whatever state they are in. And then also like the last step is just unconditional love. And I think that's in my own experience, you know, playing more of a grief ally role as I become more capable of doing so is that, you know, in the early days Grievers can get really 
down on themselves. Like, oh no, like now I'm a bad friend. You know, I'm taking up all of your energy and it's all about me. And I, I want to remind people that, you know, love in itself is hard and love is not always easy and it is not always reciprocated, but that's what makes it unconditional, right? Like one day I'm going to need help and the next day you're going to need help. And that's, that's how we stay in other people's lives. And that's the kind of, that's the kind of love that we need in, you know, our hardest times. Um, So those three basic things, respect, empowerment, and unconditional love. I love that so much. And that this grief allyship really goes really, you know, across time, as you said, and, and in its practicality will look different over time. The ways my friends show up for me year 12 is very different than year one, but to how we show up as an ally will change over time, I think is so, so beautiful. You know, there was a particular passage that I thought was interesting um, that we might touch on that I think some people struggle with, especially when we have losses, like maybe in big family systems, maybe sometimes when it's messy family systems, which is when we are one of many allies for a griever. And when there's kind of, I don't want to say jockeying for position, but sometimes Mm. there's a little bit of like tension and who, who has what role. And there's sort of that conflict. And you, you reference um, the wolf pack, Abby Wambach's, book and I'm talking about sort of leading from the bench. What, what might you say to somebody who's listening, who's sort of in that state where they are one of many, maybe many friends and there's some like question or tension about where and when do I step in and where, what's my role? Yeah. Um, so first thing I would say that, you know, grief allyship is a team sport. You know, it is the greatest team sport that will ever live beyond sports, you know? Yeah. Um, but because it is a team sport, we can use, you know, a sport analogy, which is yeah. why I do bring up, you know, Abby's role on the team in the FIFA World Cup when, you know, she was, par- she was, you know, captain of the team and decided that with the coaching staff that she wasn't going to start on the field. And yeah. for her, that was a huge learning experience because she could have thrown up her hands and been like, Oh, my career is over. I give up, you know, I'm not on this team anymore, but instead she chose to lead from the bench and that, you know, leadership and teamwork is not about just when you were on the field. It is not about just when you were being the one who is supporting this bereaved person that you care about deeply. Yeah. Yeah. You can make sure that your person Um, that you are supporting knows what you are good at. And, you know, if you have been in relation long enough, they know what your strengths are and being on a team in grief allyship is a great thing because it means that you do not have to do everything and be everything. And if you do have to be everything and do everything, you're going to burn out so quickly, right? Like grief is long. Um, And if you are trying to do everything, you're not going to be able to exist in that environment for very long. So your person does need a team. Yeah. So what I advocate is recognizing that you are on a team, letting your person know like this, these are what my strengths are. These are the assets that I have. This is when you can call on me and then cheer on the other team members who get to be with your person in the moment. And then when you get to be in the moment with your person, then they will cheer you on too. Like, I think particularly in my case, you know, because Will's death was so 
instantaneous that everybody came in in a very shocked state with yeah. very little like self-awareness of the long game. And yeah. the benefit of this being my situation is that I fawn in a crisis. Yeah. So I was very aware of everyone else's needs and what they were feeling. And I did my best for, you know, three or four days on no sleep, trying to make other people happy and make them comfortable and try to eliminate any sort of conflict. And I know that everybody was there was there because they loved me, but no one was really listening to each other Mm. or to me. (laughs) Um, And it just ended up in an explosion. Um, But the benefit of that explosion has been this kind of teamwork perspective that I can bring to grief allyship. And I can, you know, share with your listeners that like the people who are in what I write about in the book, it's called the parking lot blowout. And everybody who was involved in that argument. Yeah. I am closer to now because we were able to recover from that mistake and I've been able to lean on those individual people for their strengths. And even if it has been, you know, three years down the road, everybody has gotten a turn to be in the game and on the field. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, my, my call to people is, you know, recognize your strengths and assets. Yeah. Make sure your person knows what they are and wait for your time to be on the field. And in the meantime, you know, support the other people who are in the game with your person. I love that particular part. I mean, I love all of it, but I love that particular part about like when it's not your turn, support the other people. How are you checking in? How are you sort of rallying? Um, because also you're modeling, just like the griever can't do it all on their own. You can't do it all on your own. This is like life lesson, not just grief lesson, <laughs> yeah. right? But I love this notion of um, sort of, bringing in and sort of supporting or highlighting, or even maybe your help is saying, I remember you told me that your friend so-and-so is good at blank. Would it be helpful if I reached out to them for you or something like that, just to sort of build a network? Yeah. Yeah. And you know, what's so beautiful is that since writing the book and, you know, I'll echo again that like, I have the most wonderful chosen family, you know, there, there was a, an unexpected significant death um, in our community earlier this year. And instantly when it happened, instead of everyone jumping and running to this person saying, how do I help you? We made a WhatsApp group. And in that group, like that's where we centralized information. We made a schedule of, you know, who was going to check on this friend and, you know, that's who gave updates like when they were with her. And I mean, I, I hope that that friend, you know, felt that, um, and and that the I burden think, wasn't on them to sort of figure out and communicate, which is always the challenge. Like we don't often yeah. know what we need as the griever, especially early. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, someone went and like took her to, you know, buy a dress for, yeah. you know, the, the funeral and yeah. they came back and someone gave her a ride home from the hospital. And it, um, yeah, I think it, it, it gave all of us more confidence that we were going to be able to support her. Yeah. No, I love that. I love that. I mean, that is the thing we learn and we learn and we grow. And I will say, I won't speak for you, but I'll speak for me, you know, having been through multiple losses, having done this professionally in all kinds of domains, I still mess up by the way, because one of the things you talk about, which we won't have time to talk about here today is like, you're going to mess up. If you're in the game, you're going to mess up, right? You're going to 
say something that might offend them. You're going to not show up. You're going to forget an anniversary. That's not important. The important part is getting back up and showing back up, owning your mistake and getting back in the game. And um, so, yeah, there's, there isn't a perfect way to do it. Let go of that. Let go of that perfection, yes. right? It's about showing yes. up. But you do offer so many tips in the book about active listening and practical advices and really helping those of us who are going to be grief supporters, which are 100% of us, um, just like 100% of us are going to experience loss, how we do it. So I just really want to encourage folks to get that. But as we close, I really wanted to make sure we sort of did this through line. And this is only three and a half years in the wake of Will's death. So maybe if we have this conversation in three more, we'll be different. But you've not only taken your experience and really saw this gap in terms of like, how do I talk? How do we help people become better allies? You've also gone back to school and are now a therapist, correct? Yes. Tell me yes, about kind of how, how, maybe just a little, just sort of about like, as you land now with your therapist credentials, and I know you're doing coaching work, what kind of, what is your next wish for your work or how do you want to contribute to the sort of grief world in the work that you're doing? Oof. I know a thing. It doesn't have to be the thing. <laughs> a thing. Um, I want to create a world where people's grief doesn't have to be something that they have to hide. Yeah. I want it to be something that gets integrated in their identity and that they get to move forward with. Yeah. And I think that the, the contribution that I wanted to make to the world with Grief Ally is, is take grief work away from the world of self-care and bring it into the world of community care. Mm. And that, you know, we cannot reconcile our losses in isolation. We, it is not, it, the weight of the death of our beloveds is too heavy for one person to carry. But if we can live in communities where the people that we have lost still get to live alongside us in conversation, in memory, in, in ritual, in, you know, the smallest actions and words, um, as we move through our days, then I think everyone is going to live a much like fuller, more vibrant life that, that we're worthy of. Yeah. Um, and, that's my, that's my goal with, with coaching, with, with therapy, with, with writing, with having conversations like this, like that's, that's the world I, I want to live in. And that's the world that, that I hope I'm contributing to building. I cannot think of a more beautiful way to end our conversation. So with that, I'm just going to say, Allie Bird, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Y'all, I'll drop the link in the show notes and on my social media at Lisa Kefau for MSW at Grief is a Sneaky Bitch, Grief Ally, helping people you love cope with death, loss, and grief. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Oh, Lisa, it has been an honor and a pleasure. And, and thank you for having me. And thank you for, for doing the work that you do. 
Well, friends, there's another episode of Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast in the books. Don't forget, if this episode or the show in general means something to you, head over to your favorite podcast platform like Apple Podcast and leave a five-star rating and write a review. I truly would appreciate it. And if you want someone else to feel seen and held in their grief, why not share this episode with them? I also want to thank Guile Smith of Alafia Sound for creating the music for the show today and the team at Permanent Record Studios for producing it. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. Until next time, I see you, I hear you, and I'm holding you in my heart.